This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. This is Dory Clark, author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And you are listening to the 350th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Dory Clark to talk about her book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards and one of the top 10 communications professionals in the world by Global Gurus. She consults and speaks for a diverse range of clients, including Google, the World Bank, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, the Ford Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Yale University. Dory is the author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Dory has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and she is quoted frequently in the worldwide media, including NPR, the BBC, and MSNBC. And interesting facts... She is a former journalist, a producer of a multi-Grammy-winning jazz album, and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. Dory, congratulations on the long game, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, I couldn't stay away. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> well, congratulations on becoming a member of a very exclusive cl uh, group, the Marketing Book Podcast Four Timers Club. 
Unbelievable. That is yes. that is quite the honor. I appreciate it. Yeah, feel free to add it to your bio. I uh, don't need to do it right away. But um, so I, uh, I'm very excited to be able to interview you again. And I, I recently interviewed, if I could drop a name, I interviewed Dr. Robert Cialdini about his new and expanded edition of Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And I was delighted to see that you endorsed that right on there on the very first page, uh, a blurb from Dory. Yes, I was I was honored to be able to do it. It's always one of these great full circle things because Influence was a book that I read in the early days of starting my own business and uh it it influenced me greatly and so to be able to actually uh be asked to weigh in and uh to provide a quote for him on the the new edition was very meaningful he's uh yeah he's a, he's a genius so uh, i i definitely recommend that book for everybody well you talk about full circle and you did that for him but there have been a number of authors that have been on the podcast that have talked about how you have helped them. I mean, people on their first books. Two that come to mind right off the bat are Jim Carr and uh, Michael F. Shine, who was on the on the podcast recently. You're helping a lot of folks, Dory Clark. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for that, Douglas. So to continue that, there was one part in your book, which we may not even get to, but you talked about Marshall Goldsmith, who was a, a pioneer in the field of business education and leadership coaching. And at one point, you were writing about his heroes, his his mentors, and how the one thing he noticed about them is that they were always nice to me. They were kind. I was nobody. They were big deals, yet they were being nice to me. And guess who came to mind? Dory Clark. <laughs> a couple years ago, I was, you know, starting a podcast. This was in late 2014, I guess. And I reached out to you and I thought, what do I have to lose? And I'd read another one of your articles in either HBR or, or Forbes or something. And I said, hey, I'm, you know, a longtime fan. I'm starting this podcast. I interview authors. Is there any chance I might be able to, you know, interview you about reinventing you, your first book? And you responded. <laughs> and so you said, Douglas, I'd love to be on your podcast. And I've actually got another one coming out pretty soon. Could I be on for that too? And I said, are you kidding? I'd hit pay dirt. And uh, so that was, you were on episode seven in February oh, wow. of 2015. And then you came back very quickly about two months later to talk about Stand Out. Uh, that was episode 15. And then you came back for episode 144, where we talked about entrepreneurial you. And then a couple years ago, I, I got to meet you at a conference, and that was very exciting. And I have to tell this one funny story. I ran into a friend years ago, a friend of mine named Trey, who was a television uh, advertising salesperson. He's had a you know, pretty long, successful career at that. But, you know, advertising's changing like so many things. And it was it was tough sledding for him. And he was saying, I don't, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I'm not sure what I want to do with my life. You know, something that a lot of us always think about. And the more I heard, I said, you know, Trey, you ought to read this book called Reinventing You. It's perfect. Everything he said, you know, I love making book prescriptions and, and for listeners too. You know, if I can save someone from having to read 350 books, <laughs> if I can recommend one or two right now, uh, it makes me happy. And so anyway, I, I hadn't seen him for a while. And then about a year later, the day that I was interviewing you about entrepreneurial you, I remember this. I ran out, I ran into him on the sidewalk outside my office building and I said, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? I said, did you ever read that book, Reinventing You? He goes, oh, 
Yes. Oh, I've been meaning to thank you for that. I read that book. I quit my job. <laughs> I joined a nonprofit, and now I'm head of all their development, and I couldn't be happier. So <laughs> the impact. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you see, the, I, I, I'm sure that makes you happy to hear the, the impact that the, the right book at the right time, and it was, it was your book. And what I wanted to ask was, could you briefly recap the, the trilogy, as I like to call it, those first three books? You did that at the very end of, of this book, but just so folks who have not heard about those three, uh, if you could explain what they are, and then we'll, we'll start talking about the long game. Well, I would be glad to. And I just first wanted to interject, Douglas, that one of the statistics that for me has been most memorable and in some ways most meaningful from my most recent book, Entrepreneurial You, is the fact that there was a 10-year longitudinal study of podcasts done. And as you may recall from having read it, the average podcast lasts an ep- lasts an average of only six months and 12 episodes before its creator gives up and shuts it it down. And so the fact that you are now on episode 350 is really a testament to your verve and your <laughs> perseverance. So uh, just props to you for that. Oh, thanks. Well, I love I love doing it. It's it's an occupational hobby and I just it it does a lot of things for me and and now I'm really fulfilled knowing that it helps so many people too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, so to answer your original question about my trilogy of books, my first three books, I do in many ways think of them as a trilogy. Uh, The first book, Reinventing You, is about uh, professional reinvention and how to find and reinvent your way into the career that you want to be in. Stand Out is the next phase, which is about how once you're in that field or in that company to really get recognized for your expertise and become uh, a thought leader in your field or become recognized as someone within your company that is indispensable. And then finally, Entrepreneurial You, my third book, is about how to create multiple revenue streams in your business, how to uh, essentially monetize that expertise that you have been creating so that you can build a, a scalable and sustainable career for yourself. And when you set out to write the first book, did you have a sense that the, these three would would fit together like that, or did you? Was it a, a journey of discovery where you you one led to the next? It was a little bit of a journey of discovery. Um, re, you know, for my first book, honestly, I wanted to write a book. I had always wanted to write a book. I honestly really didn't care what it was about. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I'll do something, and that was the topic that the market said that it wanted. I had tried unsuccessfully with other ideas that that nobody but me seemed to think were a good idea. Uh, but reinvention was the one that seemed to capture other people's uh, interest and attention and mind share. So I wrote that book. And then from there, I tackled the topics that that frankly were the ones that were most relevant and of most pressing professional interest to me. Uh, Because in my own business, I wanted to crack the code. I wanted to figure out how to get better known uh, as a professional and and build my business. And so I wrote Stand Out with that in mind that I thought, you know, I I, want to 
essentially create a masterclass for myself. And I'm glad to share what I'm learning. <laughs> and for Entrepreneurial You, it was the same thing. Uh, I had devoted a lot of time and energy to building a strong reputation and a strong brand in my field. And I, I was making good money, but I wasn't making great money. And I thought, okay, I, there's, there's things I need to learn. And so I wanted to reach out to other people who seemed to be monetizing very successfully and learn, learn their secrets, apply them myself, and then share that knowledge with other people. And I seem to recall that reinventing you, uh, part of the journey there was that you wrote an article somewhat about that topic in Harvard Business Review. And very quickly thereafter, you were contacted uh, with a couple of book uh, proposals. Uh, yeah, I, I had written an article that came out in, I think it was the March 2011 Harvard Business Review print magazine. And within a week of that article coming out, three different literary agents reached out to me and asked if if I was represented and would I be interested in maybe thinking about turning it into a book. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, like, wow, this is what it feels like to be wanted. That's, yeah. that's amazing. I'm not familiar with this. Um, so that actually happened very quickly and relatively easily in the scheme of things. Uh, of course, the part that came before was me writing three different book proposals that were not that, all of which got turned down by mm -hmm. basically everybody. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in your book, you're really forthcoming about all the uh, the obstacles and setbacks you've had. People probably don't realize Dory Clark experiences those kinds of things, but you, it, you just keep going and it's, it's, it's really uh, just admirable. Now, I wanted to read three excerpts from the very beginning of the book and then uh, get into some of the details of the book. So at one point, uh, you write, we all know the mantra, there's no such thing as an overnight success. We know it takes time and patience. But what I've come to discover in my executive coaching work and with participants in my recognized expert community is that often it's unclear what patience means. Is patience writing two articles, 10, 100? <laughs> A thousand? How long until we get our ideas recognized and are able to create the kind of lives and careers we want? In the long game, my goal is to lay the process bare and to share the unvarnished reality behind what it takes to build long-term success. And then moving on, you write, in this book, I'll be sharing key concepts and strategies that undergird the process of long-term thinking, ones that I've discovered through experimentation in my own life, as well as through coaching hundreds of top executives and entrepreneurs. This book is intended for professionals who want something more out of their lives and work and who are willing to take the harder path to get there. You may be a mid-career executive wondering what's next. You could be an entrepreneur frustrated that your ideas aren't being heard as widely as you wish. You could be planning for a retirement career and don't want to waste time or energy with the wrong moves. You might be a younger professional ready to play on a bigger stage. And finally, another section, you write, intellectually, we all know that lasting success takes persistence and effort. And yet so much of our culture pushes us toward doing what's easy, what's guaranteed, and what looks glamorous in the moment. 
The long game is intended to be a clarion call on behalf of long-term thinking. It's a practical toolkit that shows you in those darkest moments of doubt how to keep prioritizing what matters most, doing small things over time to achieve your goals, and being willing to keep at them even when they seem pointless, boring, or hard. Those are the choices that set you apart. It's blogging when no one reads your blog to test ideas and create an audience. It's taking the Toastmasters class when it seems like no one cares what you have to say to become a more effective presenter. It's going to networking events when you feel like the least accomplished person in the room to gain new insights and context. You can't perceive a difference after a week or a month or often even a year. Big goals may seem, and frankly are, impossible in the short term. But what few realize is that with small, methodical steps taken day after day, almost anything is attainable and frequently sooner than you might imagine. So let's start playing the long game. And I have to chuckle because just before I read that, you said, well, yes, I got those three uh, pitches to to write a book, but it didn't just suddenly happen. There was a lot that came uh, before that. So again, that, that comes through in the book. Let me explain for the listener that the book is organized into three sections. It's it's what you call white space, what we'll talk about, focus where it counts, and keeping the faith. So let's start with the, the, the first section about white space. And I want to quote one more time. It's an eminently quotable book. You know what, Dory Clark? Every book I've ever read from somebody that had a journalism background is a winner. <laughs> <laughs> I can always tell. So you write, you can't pour more liquid into a glass that's already full. And that's why if we're going to make the smart choices about how to spend our time and energy, we need to give ourselves some white space. Too many talented professionals live their lives on autopilot, racing around from one obligation to another. Being so busy may seem like the path to success, but without time to reflect, an ominous possibility looms. What if we're optimizing for the wrong things? We need to give ourselves the opportunity to explore what a successful life means to us. So, Dory, to start off, explain the real reason why we're all so busy. It's not what a lot of people probably think. Indeed, indeed. What most people will say when they say, well, you know, why are you so busy? Uh, They'll say, oh, my God, the meetings, the emails. And that is not wrong. You know, they are they are not wrong about this. Studies have shown uh, McKinsey studies showed that that the average professional spends about 28 percent of their time, their workday on email. Um, An Atlassian group study shows that the average professional has 62 meetings per month. I mean, you know, that that is not insubstantial. But additionally, the part that I think is often harder for us to recognize or acknowledge is that especially in Western cultures, there is a, a real sense that busyness equates with self-worth. And if we are busy, if we're crazy busy, we are in demand. People want us. We're valuable. And to actually make changes to pivot away from that, it might it might be what we want intellectually, but it also can be a little confronting because then you say, well, am I really as necessary as I thought I was? Am I really as essential as I as I think I should be or ought to be. And it can lead down a rabbit hole of, of challenging questions. Of course, the other key thing is that if we actually had some white space, we might actually be able to do some thinking. And that can be uncomfortable if what you're dealing with is 
the kinds of perplexing problems that we don't really have good solutions to. You know, is this the right path for me? Should should I be pursuing this? Uh, it's not always clear cut. Well, yes, and sometimes it's very comforting not to have to think about those things and just you know uh, stay busy. I guess or sort of of jam your thoughts without having to think about it. Yeah, exactly. So. I mentioned this because you went to Harvard Divinity School. So years ago, I was on the vestry of my Episcopal church, <laughs> and I'm not well suited to that type of thing, you know, like a, a board or a deliberative body. And I, as a result, I didn't really, um, I didn't enjoy it. I'm, I'm sure I'm the first person that has served on a vestry that doesn't want to do it again. But <laughs> <laughs> years later, there was a new rector in our church. And I remember he came, I knew him, loved him. I, he came by my office and he was always asking me about, you know, social media and, uh, you know, the website and things like that. And he was saying, um, why, why don't you, why don't you come back on the vestry? Come on. I know you were on it before, before <laughs> I was there. Why don't you come on? And I, I laughed and I said, you know, one of the most important things I learned by serving on the vestry was how to say no. Mm, yes and so when i saw chapter two you talk about the importance of saying no even to good things so i was uh i was i was very encouraged to uh, to see that talk about again the, the importance of of saying no to certain things and it's hard to say no it's really hard to say no. And, you know, most professionals, if you've gotten to a certain place, you, you've learned to, to say no some, to mm -hmm. some things. Um, we all know how to say no to things that are bad, you know, that are, that are oh, you know, won't you, won't you go to dinner with that really, really boring person? Like, no, I'm going to find a way. It's going to be hard, but I'll, I'll find a way. Um, but, the challenge comes, especially as you progress in your career and you get access to more opportunities, you start getting more good opportunities than you know what to do with. And it, at first, of course, you're like, oh, well, this is amazing. Yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. But the problem is that there really are finite limits to our time. You know, there's there's this very fixed 168 hours and the strategy for almost everyone at first, because we are trained early on, I mean, as, as we should be, that early in your career, the, the default needs to be yes, because you don't, you don't actually have a lot of people queuing up for you and you don't actually know what is going to lead to something meaningful. So yes is the best answer early on, but later you have to start refining that because you are going to, uh, if we're lucky, have the opportunity to do more good things than you even have time for. And that's where the hard strategic choices really take place uh, because there's a lot of things you could do. We need to actually exercise some control over what we're going to do. Uh, because again, something we know intellectually is that if we try to do everything, we'll do it badly. But in practice, people are profoundly unwilling to make that call to say, okay, I choose this and not that. And there was a very interesting story in the book about how a friend, an acquaintance of yours, asked you to go on a trip to uh, Grand Cayman. And you ultimately said no. And I guess by saying no, you it, it helped you think through, well, this would be great, but it's not really where I want to I want to be going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, on, on the surface, it's kind of the classic example, right? Like, hey, would you like to have a Caribbean vacation for free? Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> why, why would you not? Mm -hmm. But 
one of the things that I think all of us need to start doing and learning to do is to dig a little bit below the surface. Because if I had just looked at that, the answer would have been yes. You know, I mean, maybe the second tier is, well, can I do it? Does it fit in my schedule? But the answer to that was yes, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, if we want to get smart about this, we need to learn to dig a little bit deeper. And so I began really contextualizing it and saying, okay, well, what is the context of this time? And it turned out that I was already scheduled to be traveling on business the week before and the week after. So it began to be, oh, well, is it worth it to me to be on the road for three consecutive weeks? That made it sound uh, a little a little more challenging. And then I began to look at, well, what would I get out of being here? Um, you know, of course, it sounds fun to to be on the beach. But what I was honestly most excited about was just the opportunity to hang out with my friend who I hadn't seen very much. And then I thought about it and I said, well, wait, why am I going to Grand Cayman? She lives in Brooklyn. Like <laughs> I, I live in Manhattan. Like I actually really could see her. I don't have to fly, you know, five hours or however far it is. Like, I could actually take the subway and have dinner with her this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I I began to say, oh, you know, there might be a different way to do this. Yeah, and it wasn't a paid gig and your others were. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, it, it's, it's really just peeling back the layers to hopefully ask slightly more sophisticated and more intensive questions that can enable you to determine whether you really should be doing it or not. Right. And having a clearer picture of your goals also helps people decide, well, is this really the thing I want to be doing? So in another part of that chapter, I was so encouraged, Dory Clark, when it said choosing to be bad is your only shot at achieving greatness. <laughs> yes! <laughs> talk, yes! Talk about why it's important to decide. This sounds counterintuitive, but why is it important to decide what to be bad at? And that goes for people and businesses. Yes, absolutely. So when it comes to deciding what to be bad at, this I mean, even even saying the word sounds heretical in some <laughs> ways. Why why would you do that? Why wouldn't you try to be great at everything? But of course, um, we have limited energy, and we have to be realistic about that. So this actually comes from, uh, I was inspired by the work of my colleagues, Francis Fry and Ann Morris, who in their book, Uncommon Service, uh, which was about the service industry, they were writing about what made some companies really successful, really popular, and others were not. And ultimately, they said it was about choosing what to be bad at. Because in a world of finite resources, if you're going to invest the extra effort to be great, um, something has to give. And so just as one example, there was a bank that they profiled in the book. And this bank had great hours. They, they stayed open uh, until 8 o'clock at night during weekdays. They were open on weekends. It, understandably, their customers were very happy about this. They loved it. They said, oh, this is the most convenient bank. I love this bank. Now, why wouldn't every bank do it? Well, you know, obviously, money. it's because it costs money. Yeah. That's right. And so this particular bank said, all right, well, what are we going to sacrifice in order to put the money into the longer hours? And so they decided to really chop the amount of money that they would pay on uh, interest on customers checking and savings accounts. And, you know, if you ask somebody straight up or down, 
hey, would you like to have like a really low interest rate? Uh, you know, people are like, well, no, I want to get more money. Mm-hmm. But the truth was when push came to shove, what mattered more to these particular customers was having ease of use and ease of access. They didn't even really notice that much. They didn't even really care that much about the interest rates. Um, but most companies are not willing to make that call. And so therefore they have like, okay, interest rates, and then they have okay hours, but nothing, nothing special, nothing that's really noteworthy. Whereas this company was willing to make the choice and therefore was able to create their band of raving fans. And the idea of talking about what are we going to be bad at? It's actually somewhat liberating. (laughs) Like it's going to be okay. That's what we're going to do. And there was a book on the show a while back called The Strategy Mindset 2.0 by Chuck Bamford. And, you know, it was all about strategy. And he was explaining that a lot of companies think they're supposed to be really good at everything. And he's saying nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> it's picking a few things that your customers really want and doing a, a great job. So let's go to the second uh, section, which is called Focus Where It Counts. It's actually the biggest one. And I just wanted to read one more time from this where you write, now that you've opened up room in your calendar and your mind to consider new possibilities, an important question emerges. What exactly should you be aiming toward? Playing the long game is great, but it's not always obvious what your goals should be. So what are some of the things that you can do to decide on what the right goals are? When it comes to deciding about your goals, um, one of the strategies that I advise is something that I call optimize for interesting. And I am a fan of this strategy in particular because the truth is, I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you have a passion, I mean, by all means, why not? Why not try to do that? But I think that that formulation, which has become so common in contemporary American business life, um, kind of does us a disservice because the, the truth is most people, many people are just not sure what that, what that is. Or, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, it's like, well, you know, Douglas, you should, ma- here's my marriage advice, marry your soulmate. And it's like, <laughs> um, yes, that's great advice. But like, ah, uh, is this one my soulmate? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And you it know, troubles me when I hear about graduation speeches or, or, or any kind of advice where they say, just follow your passion. no. No, you know, I, and so I felt better when I saw this because when I've gone back to where I went to school and they, they could talk to some of these students, what, what we try to say is, you know, what interests you? What interests you? And I think that's a much better North Star for someone. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's lower stakes, right? I mean, most people, you might not know what your passion in life is, but you know, you know, if something's interesting, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, any, anybody can tell you like, oh, well, did you like calculus class? Was that interesting? And you know what? Some people are literally going to say yes. <laughs> That's amazing. But they're going to say yes. And then, you know, you, you're going to say yes to whatever your particular thing is. But, um, but it's a starting point and it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a definitive answer. What, what I, like about it as well is I really encourage people to take an experimental uh, viewpoint, an experimental methodology, see if it's interesting, keep exploring it up to the point where it's not interesting, and then (laughs) explore something else. And if it keeps being interesting, well, mazel, keep going. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to do. Well, Dory, let's get ridiculous as it relates to goals. You say that the whole point of playing the long game is understanding that ridiculous goals are ridiculous right now, not forever. 
do the ridiculous goals, do you find that those really frighten people off because they don't think they can achieve them immediately? Well, I think, I think that they certainly can. Um, people are, you know, here's a shocker. People are often afraid to fail <laughs> or to look like a failure. Sure. And so, uh, as a result of that, um, I think that people often downscale their ambitions as a way of um, avoiding even the appearance of failure to themselves or to other people. Mm -hmm. And so they're not necessarily thinking as big or as bold as, uh, as they could. But what I like to encourage in the long game is the fact that I think it's fine. I think it's great to have a big motivational goal. It's just understanding the framing and the context that, you know, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. You might not be able to run the marathon, uh, if, if your timeline is what you can do next week or what you can do next month. But I guarantee you, if you have a long enough runway, if you create a plan for yourself where you say, well, this is what I'm going to do in a year, this is what I'm going to do in five years or 10 years, you know, barring physical impossibility, you can literally do almost anything. I created a, a 10 year goal for myself. This is something I talk about in the long game as well, uh, of writing a show that makes it to Broadway. And this was literally something I knew nothing about. I had no training in musical theater whatsoever. Uh, but I decided that I would learn. And I decided that within 10 years, that was enough time that I actually could learn and that I could execute on that. And so I'm now five years into that process. And I'm actually, I'm actually pretty far along. I've written a complete musical. I have completed uh, a very prestigious musical theater training program run by BMI, the music mm -hmm. publishing company. Um, I now know and have relationships with, you know, literally dozens, probably three dozen uh, Broadway producers. Uh, and so you're an investor. I mean, I started investing as a way of building my network. So I understand the ecosystem infinitely better than I did before. And I actually have a marketable property that I am working to advance. And my goal remains to get on Broadway in the 2026 season. Now, if I, if I had that goal in 2016 and I said, well, my goal is to get on Broadway in the 2017 season. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what, maybe that's if you what, bought a ticket. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like the goal that idiots make, right. <laughs> but, you know, it, you have to, you have to be realistic about the time frame. But uh, but yeah, it, for 10-year goals, you can actually be fairly outlandish because the truth is if you're taking if you're taking consistent action and it's compounded, um, you surprisingly often can get where you want to go. Yes, and you're, it became uh, obvious in reading your book that you try so many different things. You, you're always, um, it's like your life is an unending exploration. <laughs> and and I, I noticed that you and I both, as an example, have taken stand-up comedy classes. But you have done something I haven't done, but I think maybe I should try, which is take a pole dancing fitness class. But uh, I think you'd be quite fetching, Douglas. I, I endorse I do. that. Now, now, seriously, you've got to have some serious core strength. And I would do it just because I know it would make my wife laugh. You know, so, <laughs> some guys are always trying to impress their wives. I'm just trying to make her laugh. You know, it's a challenge sometimes. But, but you've got a chapter on this. It's, it's explain the importance of exploration and maybe remind listeners or, or give them permission that it's okay to explore things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I in the long game, uh, do have a chapter about this. Um, 
because to me, it's a really critical part of long range strategy. The truth is, if you are pursuing something that is somewhat speculative over the long term, which I mean, frankly, most of the big goals are, it does become very hard to pull off and can be quite a damaging loss if that is the only thing that you're doing. And so the framework that I suggest is that we need to make small strategic bets kind of in line with Google's uh, 20% time policy, mm-hmm. which they made famous uh, you know, 20 years ago when they were uh, initially going public and drawing headlines. And the basic idea, of course, for folks who are not familiar with it, is that you allocate 20% of your time to these essentially speculative activities, things that are interesting to you, but might not be directly related to your job, might not have a direct payoff. And that is, in fact, how Google uh, News was invented. It's how Gmail was invented, is because of the explorations of Google employees early on. And similarly for us, you know, no one is going to hand you this time, even at Google. It's not like your manager says, oh, well, gosh, what are you going to do with your 20% time? Why don't you take all Friday to work on that? They don't <laughs> say that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, studies have shown that only 10% of Googlers actually do this. You have to, you have to really uh, will yourself. You have to really be proactive in carving this out because otherwise, uh, if left to natural devices, all you're going to do is just have uh, more stuff to do for your day job. And it's the same with us. We have to forcibly carve out the time. But I think that we all should be creating our own 20% time focused on long-range speculative activities. Because if you if you invest over a long enough horizon, you actually can see some of these moonshot bets pay off and it can make a big difference for your career, much in the way that musical theater has been an engine for me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about how to think about these things. Because you have a very interesting part in the book, which you call Thinking in Waves. And I want to talk about those four. But I was wondering if you could first explain this concept of heads up and heads down. That seems to be crucial. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I, I certainly became aware of in looking at and studying the long game and how to be a long-term thinker is the fact that we really are not going to be successful if we treat everything as a sprint. You just can't. We're, you know, we're not machines and we need to have cycles. We need to have breaks. Uh, It's got to be both marathon and sprint. And so a very illuminating conversation that I had with my friend Jared Kleinert when I was interviewing him for my book, Entrepreneurial You, uh, taught me about the concept of heads up and heads down mode. And the way that he described it, which I thought was great, was basically, you know, when you're in heads up mode, that's the time when it's it's social, it's collaborative, it's uh, it's about looking for new ideas and new inspiration. You are seeking the next thing. You are actively exploring and testing. And that's great. That's a lot of fun. But eventually, you know, you can't do that forever because if you're, if you're constantly looking for the next thing, you're not going to get anything done on this thing. So at a certain point, you have to just put your chips on the table and choose. And that's where you go into heads down mode. And that becomes much more about execution and doing the work and moving things forward so that you can actually show real results. And if you can cycle between those two, that's how we can be most successful. Because obviously, if you're only in heads down mode, which frankly, a lot of 
professionals spend their entire career doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, gosh, I can't I can't meet anyone. I can't network because I just have to do my job. Well, you know, that's that's the recipe for disaster, too, because it means that you may be optimizing yourself for an outcome you don't actually even want anymore. Uh, so having both is powerful. Yeah. And it brought to mind the story I've heard about how Bill Gates will will leave for like a week or two and just read books. I don't know if you have you ever heard about that? Indeed. Yes. Yes. The much vaunted reading vacations. I bet he wishes he had done more of that and less of <laughs> meeting with Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Well, but it's the sort of thing where he brought to mind this example of somebody who's carving out. It, it just, I thought, well, that's a good example of a a heads up time where he was probably trying to get away and, 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 and think about things. So let's talk about these other, what you call uh, waves of thinking. If, if you could touch on these, it's, and I, I realize I'm doing like three of them, but I'm not doing the, uh, one of them. <laughs> it's it's learning, creating, connecting, and reaping. Learning, creating, connecting, and reaping. So a, a related concept to heads up and heads down mode is uh, what I call thinking in waves. And ultimately, this is about different phases of our professional lives. Because it, the truth is, when people are not necessarily experiencing the success that they want, or they feel stuck. It often, I have discovered in my coaching and consulting work, it often is because they have failed to transition into the next wave. And so they're, they're sort of stuck, you know, on repeat doing the same thing over and over again and saying, well, why, why isn't this working? And it's not working because the point is not to keep doing the same thing. It's to transition. So the first phase is 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 learning and you know this is true obviously early in your career but it's also true in in smaller ways you know you have these mini cycles uh if let's say you change jobs or you change careers um you need to go through a period where you're orienting yourself um you, you need to meet your new co-workers you need to understand how things work in your new organization that's that's a valuable thing that you really should not skip um but obviously you can't do that forever you know, I, I certainly know plenty of professionals that are like, why can't I get business? And it's because literally they spend all their time just like reading new books and taking new courses. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, that's, that's great. But like, you can't be in college forever. Like, come on. Right, <laughs> right. So, yeah. You have an example of that where somebody just, there was like, they just wanted to get one more certification. Exactly. And so that's why you next need to go into a mode where you're actually creating something of your own and sharing those ideas. You need to start assimilating the things that you've learned, put your own spin on it, share your own perspective, let other people know what your ideas are. That's how you actually can attract them to you uh, so that you can begin to get business. And then the next phase is, you know, you certainly don't want to do all of that in a vacuum. You need to build connections so that other people know who you are, so that they mm -hmm. can refer business to you, so that you have a, a community of people to learn from, to amplify ideas, etc. And then finally, you know, you put all those pieces together and you get to, quote unquote, the end, which I call the reaping phase. Um, and then some people just stay there. And, you know, it's a nice place to be like, oh, I'm successful. I've got it figured out. That's great. But um, you say that's also where it can be the most dangerous. It is very much where it can be dangerous, because if you if you have a reasonably uh, successful a kind of self-satisfied person, um, that that's where uh, that's where a lot of passion and learning and growth goes to die because they're just they're just kind of phoning it in. They're doing the work. They're getting paid well. Yay, that's amazing. 
But ultimately, if we want to have a meaningful life where we continue to grow and we don't just harp on, you know, the things that we did in the past or the successes in the past that got us to where we are, we need to keep learning new things, which is why I actually profile Marshall Goldsmith, who you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and uh, talk about the initiative that he started, which I'm fortunate enough to be part of, uh, called the 100 Coaches Initiative, where he's created a completely free community where he has picked uh, a number of people to, you know, in sort of quote unquote, the next generation to pass his knowledge on to and to, to train in his methodology and sort of bring into his world. And that's a way through giving back that he is continuing to learn and continuing to have things to be excited about so that he's not just like milking the resources that he created 20 or 30 years ago. Right. And you write as the Bible and Bob Dylan famously said, there is a time to reap, but it doesn't go on forever. The most successful people enjoy their success, then recognize it's time to move on and learn something new. So in the <clears throat> there's a chapter on strategic leverage, and what I wanted to ask you about was uh, multitasking. You know, we, we all hear the word multitasking, and it's like uh, bad breath or something. It's just, uh, they think of it as a bad thing, but you actually argue that it's a little more subtle than that. There's actually good multitasking and bad multitasking. Explain how, what good multitasking is and how that helps. Sure. Well, certainly we all know bad multitasking, which is, oh, I'm trying to do this conference call, but also I'm typing an email and also I'm cooking. And, (laughs) you know, it's just cognitively, you can't process that many things and nothing goes well. Um, We we all know about that and we know the dangers of it. Um, What I will call good multitasking is essentially when you are strategic, when you are smart enough to combine two activities that you actually can do both of them equally well at the same time, um, but you are being efficient by combining them. So, you know, I think for a lot of us, we we are not as cautious or as careful as we might want to be about our time. And so, oh, well, I'm just, you know, sitting there, play, you know, playing, playing Candy Crush or scrolling on social media or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if the time goes away. But there are goals, there are things we want to do. And if we can find moments where we can insert them without any cost, uh, that can become very powerful. And I, I actually did a time tracking experiment, which I wrote about for Harvard <laughs> Business Review. And, and I mean, in your book, too, you were a little bit surprised at what you found. That's right. I was, I was able to get close to 30% more time in my week uh, because, you know, in, in tallying, I would, I would double count something if I legitimately could do two things effectively at once. So, I mean, Examples might be, you know, where you're doing something, for instance, with your body and then something with your mind. So mm-hmm. it could be, okay, you're working out at the gym, but you're listening to a professional development audiobook Or the marketing book podcast. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Dory. Thanks for working with me on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. A lot of people listening right now are probably walking the dog, working, exercising, driving, traveling. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're, you, you know, you got to cook dinner anyway. Okay. Call your mom, you mm-hmm. know, like do, do the things that you claim are important and you're able to, to build in far more time than you might imagine. Yes. And all of you, you should call your moms. I know I sound like I'm yelling at my kids, but call your moms people. <laughs> so in that same chapter, you explain that there are three components to becoming a recognized expert in your you know company or your, or your field. And we've touched on some of them and they are content creation, 
and social proof and a network. As it relates to networking, though, if networking is so great, Dory, why don't we do more of it? <laughs> yes, this is, this is an important question, Douglas. One of the reasons why people actually shy away from it is that the image of networking that many people have, uh, and certainly this is how it often gets talked about in the media, so it's no wonder, is really about transaction transactional networking, what I call mm -hmm. short-term networking. And they don't want to do it because it makes them feel bad. And, you know, it like should. you're using somebody, yeah. <laughs> it should make people feel bad to do that. But that is not actually good networking. That is not networking as it, uh, as it rightfully should be practiced. What I think networking should be is really just making friends with people, which is not using them at all, which is why I actually have a policy that I talk about in the long game called the no asks for a year rule. Yes. Please explain. Yeah, that was, that's great. Yeah, so if if you uh, if you are making a connection, what I suggest is that literally for a year you should not ask them for any favors. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you can ask them, you know, certain things that are not favors. Like the whole point of making friends is like, you know, well, would you like to have dinner with me, or would you like to, you know, hang out? And you can ask them simple things like, oh, Douglas, I like that shirt. Where'd you get it? Mm -hmm. But. It, what I'm talking about is a, a favor that requires political capital. Yes. Oh, hey, Douglas, I saw you had so-and-so on, on your show. Can you introduce me to them? Yeah. You know, like th those are the kinds of things that can really go badly. They can make people feel used. And so in order to ensure that they understand that you are not out to use them, in order to understand that you, you know, that you really are building a long-term relationship so that you don't even get any ideas, I suggest no asks for a year so that you can focus on building an authentic relationship. Mm -hmm. It's great. And you can actually give something to them, but you don't ask for anything. <laughs> I have to I have to laugh, Dory Clark, because you said, oh, I see you had that person on your show. Can you introduce me? It also reminds me of something else you talked about in your book, which is these, um, you didn't use this term, but it's like an ambush email, where, believe it or not, past guests on the show who, who just don't know, they're extremely uh, helpful, very nice people trying to help out another author, but they'll send an email to me and they'll say, Douglas, my good friend has just written this book about the keto diet. I think it would be great for you to have them on the Marketing Book Podcast. Because obviously it's a marketing <laughs> book, yes. <laughs> or, or yoga, yeah. And it's sort of like, oh, gosh. And as a result, I'm really sensitive to that. Like if somebody comes to me and says, I would like to talk to such and such an author because I'm writing a book and I'd like to ask them about some specific research, that's great. But I don't then email them both. I'll contact that other author and say, Here's the situation. This person is willing to do is it would be interested in asking you about this. Is that something that you you'd be willing to speak to them about? And sometimes they'll say, "Oh, not not really. That, that's not really my thing or whatever." And it's like, "Hey, no problem at all." But I sometimes get ambushed. I got ambushed this week by, you know, somebody saying, "Oh, you got to meet this person." And, and that's something you talk about. So, I guess you get those kind of emails every day, but you know, what what should folks be doing other than uh, not trying to CC both people on an email introduction? <laughs> yes. Ultimately, what we want to do is focus on building relationships with just no agenda. And so one of the strategies that I like to suggest for people is 
going all in on shared connections. So for instance, if, if you are somebody that wants to build your network to build more new connections and emphasize that, um, I like to say, look at the activities you're already a part of, look at the things you're already affiliated with, and then find ways to go deep on that because people are going to be more likely to be open to uh, peer level connections with some shared commonality. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, you write for a certain publication, you, you kind of have, uh, you know, again, there's, there's always exceptions, you know, if somebody's like crazy famous or something like that. But if you write for a publication and somebody else writes for a publication, it is completely appropriate to write, you know, to reach out to them, even cold and say, Oh, Hey, so-and-so, you know, I see you write for your, this publication. I really liked your recent article. I write for them too. And I'm always keen to meet other contributors and compare notes. Uh, you know, maybe we could get a coffee. Maybe we could, you know, meet up on zoom. Let me know. Like you did uh, when you were in Boston with some other Harvard business review contributors. Yes, absolutely. And you can do this, you know, being having the commonality that you you both are podcasters or maybe from an alumni association mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is. But uh, the tr the truth is people often really like to connect with people that they perceive as peers. That's mm -hmm. that's really the key. No, you know, people don't really like being approached by supplicants who want something from them. But if it's if it's a peer level connection and it's presented that way, um, a lot of people will be like, great, yeah, I'd love to trade notes. Yeah. Well, last part of the book was uh, keeping the faith. And I uh, have to tell a little story here. On your website, uh, where you talk about your recognized expert program, there are a series of FAQs where you're explaining what the program is and how it helps and who it's for and very forthcoming. And I had to chuckle when I saw one of the questions, the FAQ was, how quickly will I see a return on my investment? And the very first sentence of the answer is, please don't join the course. <laughs> <laughs> I saw what you did there. Explain what strategic patience is. <laughs> yes. So uh, in the book, in The Long Game, I talk about the concept of strategic patience, which I define as you know, in contrast to perhaps garden variety patients, which is, you know, oh, just wait around, maybe it'll work, uh, which is kind of a, a wishing and hoping phenomenon. Strategic patience is a little more muscular, it's a little more proactive. And it involves really making an effort to test assumptions, uh, to, uh, to gather evidence, and to make smart decisions about whether something is working, and whether it's worth investing more time or energy in. Um, but the reason that you need this is that the, tr the honest truth is that most things take longer than we want. Yes. You know, I mean, it's it's nice. It's a lucky break if, oh, my God, two weeks later, he's so famous. But <laughs> that's usually not how life works. Usually, uh, it takes it takes way longer. And it can be very, very frustrating. And so uh, going into things with a realistic understanding of what it is likely to entail is really important. And so indeed, as you mentioned, I have a, an online course and community called Recognized Expert, um, which is helping, you know, smart, generous professionals figure out how to get their message heard more widely, how to build a platform, how to get recognized for their expertise in the world. And I advise people, I mean, based on my own experience and based on now 600 plus people who have been through this program, I've, I've gotten to see it pretty longitudinally, and it is going to be two or three years of work before you see almost any result. 
And it'll probably be about five years uh, before you really start putting a gulf between yourself and the competition. And, you know, five years, two, three years, five years, honestly, it's not that long in the scheme of things. You know, I mean, the difference between, oh, well, you're, you know, you're 42 and then you're 44, like kind of, you know, who cares? It's a blink of an eye in human history. Um, but if people think that it's going to be two months instead of two years, they're going to get frustrated. Mm -hmm. They're going to give up and they're, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, I guess, I guess it wasn't meant for me. And it's like, no, no, it's just that you didn't put in enough time. Keep going. So I think that's, that's a really important message that I like to try to drive home. Yeah. It's like the quote, the, the number you had earlier about, I don't know, was it uh, the average podcast? I had heard they only get to episode seven. <laughs> um, and you, you, it sounds like you had some others. I think my, my data came from Libsyn, the webs, the, the podcast hosting service, but it's, it's a similar thing. And I think I also remember hearing years ago that the average corporate blog only had five posts on it or, or something like that, where it's just like, they really didn't think through what, what, what were they trying to accomplish? Why, why were they even getting started? And then at the end of the book, you've talked about Jeff Bezos and he's got this idea of if you focus on something that has a seven year, you know, uh, runway. Um, it's very, it's not crowded at all. Uh, most people are thinking of two months. If you're thinking seven months, it gets to that gulf you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And in fact, uh, one of the stories that I love in the long game is actually about, uh, it's also from Jeff Bezos from his 2018 letter to Amazon shareholders. Mm -hmm. And he tells a story about a friend of his who hired a handstand coach for, for her yoga practice. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and the yoga coach said that the average person thinks that it would take about two weeks of practice to learn to do a handstand in yoga. And as she said, it actually takes about six months of daily practice mm -hmm. in order to be able to do it effectively. Which, you know, if we just think of this as a metaphor, uh, I mean, because most of us probably aren't, you know, spending lots of time figuring out how to do handstands. But here's an activity that, that you know, that everybody's familiar with. And yet the average observer, if you, if you don't dig into it, which most of us don't, they underestimate by a factor of 12 <laughs> what it actually takes to accomplish it. And a lot of life is like that. So we need to get better upfront about understanding what kind of commitment is involved and being patient enough to, uh, to let that unfold. Mm. Well, last thing I want to ask you about is to explain, and this certainly ties in with all of your you know, uh, explorations you do, to talk about how treating everything as an experiment helps us to better uh, rethink failure. Yeah, certainly. Well, I, for me, what I think is important here is, of course, anytime you're doing something experimental, there is a chance of failure. Uh, sometimes, sometimes a likelihood of failure, in fact, because, um, you know, if it truly, if it truly were, were guaranteed, then that means that, that lots of people would have done it lots of times. There's nothing new about it. And so if we really want to be living the kind of life where we are trying new things and we're exploring, inevitably there are going to be failures, quote unquote. But because failure really has the, the ring and the connotation for so many people of this you know, terrible thing, oh, they mm. failed, they screwed it up, they weren't capable, um, that dissuades a lot of people. And I think that the far better frame is that if you go into something up front, 
understanding that it may well not work, you're looking at it as an experiment, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, wow, this is going to be a referendum on my worth as a human. It's no, it's just like, well, you know, let's see, let's see if this works and if it does great. And if not, we'll try this other thing. And so having the right frame up front, I think liberates us in many ways from some of the pernicious expectations that we overlay onto things. Yes. Somebody recently I heard said, uh, he said, I don't, I don't fail. I learn. <laughs> Yeah. It came to mind. It's like, okay, well, at least he learned something. So, well, Dory, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I will I will say, Douglas, that probably the the overarching concept of strategic patience is the the part that's nearest and dearest to my heart. And in fact, there's going to be an article coming out in the September issue of Harvard Business Review magazine where I expound on that concept. But you know, ultimately Success takes generally a lot longer than we want, but it doesn't mean that we have to be passive. It doesn't mean we have to be suckers about it. It just means that we need to be thoughtful about where and when we are allocating our effort. And if we do that and we really are strategically patient, we can often accomplish a lot more than we might have imagined. Mm. Well said, well said. What is one thing a listener could do today? After as soon as they uh, finish hearing this, that they could they might put in action just one of the many ideas from your book or or, or one that we've talked about. I'm actually I'm for the bonus. I'm going to suggest two things. Uh, the first, actually, and th- this is the part that I hope can begin to get people's creative juices flowing because this is part of the fun part is to really think about what a 20% activity for you would be. What do you want to learn about? What kind of person do you want to be? It doesn't literally mean that, you know, right away you have to allocate 20% of your time to something. But I think a lot of us do fritter away the interstitial moments that we have. Mm -hmm. And if you create a plan for yourself where you say, you know what, I'm interested in cryptocurrency, or I'm interested in learning about um, better delegation, or I'm interested in jazz music, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you actually create a, a kind of concerted curriculum for yourself where it's not just random, but you say, you know what? I'm going to read one book a week about the history of jazz. You know what? By the end of the year, you're actually going to know quite a lot yeah. about jazz. Mm-hmm. So you can actually begin to build that out for yourself and thinking about the 20% time. So that is what I would recommend. I will also suggest to your listeners that uh, if they want to get started started on this, I have a free self-assessment, which is the long game strategic thinking self-assessment. And folks can uh, download it for free. And it has a series of questions that that you can really ask to dive into this and grapple with it yourself. And you can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. Great. And I would add to that and suggest that people subscribe to your uh, newsletter. Um, and also there's some other uh, tools. I mean, I just downloaded them myself just to make sure <laughs> everything was all set. I'm going to have links to them, but they will really get you uh, get you thinking. Um, and for those of us that don't like to think, I don't know, <laughs> that's probably a good thing. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or uh, looking forward to reading, perhaps now that you have <laughs> time to, to read more books? Yes. Well, one one I'm certainly looking forward to, which has a October release date, is my friend Alyssa Cohn's book. Uh, I'm actually in California now as we're doing this interview, and I, I traveled out here with her to attend TED. And Is it a book uh, about rap? 
<laughs> oh, yes. So you would think, you would think, because Alyssa Cohen is featured in the long game uh, with her uh, her experimental side bet learning, freestyle, <laughs> beatbox, improv, rap. Um, but but sadly, it is it That is took a lot of courage. Literally about yes. rap. Yeah. Yes, it certainly did. Her new book is called From Startup to Grown Up, and it is about the life cycle of startup founders and how you can grow into the leader that you need to be. Oh. Uh, so I think that that's going to be a great one. Interesting. And that doesn't seem to happen very often. In other words, it <laughs> seems like the folks that are really good at starting a company are very challenged at trying to run it once it matures. Interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Well, great. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including your site and the toolkit, your uh, LinkedIn profile, your, your, your Twitter handle. And I want to ask the listeners to do me a big favor. Please uh, overwhelm Dory Clark with thanks for being on this show. There are over a million podcasts out there. And she's decided to spend a lot of time with us. And I, I really appreciate that. And Authors who have been on the Marketing Book Podcast get the biggest kick out of hearing from folks that listen to the interview, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of listeners ask questions or, or ask for book recommendations. Please reach out to, to Dory in any way you can. Make sure to subscribe to her newsletter, and it'll really make her day. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote, we have to be willing to be patient. Not patient in a passive, let things happen to you way, but actively and vigorously patient, willing to deny yourself the easy path so you can do what's meaningful. The results won't be visible tomorrow, when the progress you've made may be imperceptible, but they will be visible in five or 10 or 30 years when you've created the future you've always wanted, when you can look back on the skyscrapers where you used to work and see how it's all come together. Big goals often seem, and frankly are, impossible in the short term. But with small, methodical steps, almost anything is attainable. The only goal of this book has been to show you how to think and act for the long term to make that possible. Now it's up to you. The book is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. The author is Dory Clark. Dory, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. I am so glad to be here. Thanks so much, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 